This is your travel radio podcast, dedicated to connecting you, the traveler, to travel professionals. You will hear from authors, destination specialists, linguists, CEOs, and travel advisors that can turn these experiences into your vacation of a lifetime. Questions? Comments? Suggestions? Please email info at travelradiopodcast.com. If you like what you are hearing, please leave us a review. Now, enjoy today's audio journey on the Travel Radio Podcast. Hello and welcome to Travel Radio. I am your host, Megan Chapa, and I'm not going to do too many updates today. I am going to quick introduce this as the second installation of David Weinsock's book about real places in Scotland that you can actually visit, and he has maps included in the book, um, that inspired the fiction series Game of Thrones, both, both the book and the movies. And this chapter, the two chapters this week are on myths, gods, fairies, legends, giants, all these sort of mythical things, and then also the infamous Red Wedding, which was in real life the Black Dinner. So it's excellent. David is wonderful, and you will really want to, even if you're not a fan of Game of Thrones, I should say this, you will want to go to these places because Scotland is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And the folklore is wonderful, and the history is wonderful. Well, it's kind of tragic, actually, but very interesting and and worth a visit. So without further ado, please enjoy this second installment with David Weinsock. But um, let's talk about the third chapter we settled on, and we're just going to scratch the surface, but this is probably one that people could get hung up on because... um, it's people are just into the mystical and kind of the unknown and imagination. And this goes into the feeling kind of like the mystery of Scotland. This chapter is called gods and monsters. So, um, since we want to talk about places that people can actually visit, um, well, I, I think that we should pick just about two, Mm -hmm. um, and I'll choose one and then you can choose the next one. So I would like to talk about the giants. Um, the Giants Causeway is on my personal bucket list. So this was a really neat comparison for me to read about. So can you compare the Giants of Westeros versus the traditional giant of Scottish folklore? Absolutely. And, you know, there are, if you're interested in giant lore in particular, there are so many places you can visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Giants Causeway, of course, in Northern Ireland is probably the most internationally renowned. Um, another, which you know, does still have quite a bit of fanfare, it's one of the most picturesque places in Scotland, um, is the Old Man of Store um, yep. on the Isle of Skye. And um, it, it's this sort of rocky projection, looks almost sort of, you know, almost crafted in a sense. Um, it's these sort of rocky spires sticking out of a mountainside. And it's said to be the fingers of a giant you know, sort of frozen in place long, long ago um, in the era when supposedly humans were pushing giants out into the far-flung fringes of the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are um, a number of places as well, so a bit further south, um, around Oban, for instance, there's a um, rock called the Dogstone. Um, and this is uh, where, according to Scottish lore, the giant Fingal 
tied up his hounds that he could go away hunting in Ireland and his hound wouldn't run off. Um, and it's this massive, you know, 400 million year old uh, stone pillar. Hmm. And it's got a very distinctive sort of tapered effect down towards the bottom, almost like someone who's done their belt up a bit too tight and they're kind of squeezed in at one very, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it said, that, you know, Fingal's hound, whose name is Bran, it's incidentally, you know, the same name as one of the major uh, Starks in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, no relation there, I don't think. Um, just coincidence. Um, although Bran, of course, was a warg, right? A skin changer. So, you know, he could more around. You never know. Um, and allegedly, you know, Bran was getting a bit impatient and started running circles around this stone. And that is why, according to Scottish lore, it's got that tapered effect. Um, the reality is it's coastal erosion, but that's not nearly as good a story, is it? <laughs> uh, so um, th- there's, a, yeah, again, a quick passage, if you'd like, that I can read. Please. The, um, the giants. Um, so it's just simply comparing their physicality. You know, how do they literally stack up against one another? Um, so how do giants of Scottish myth stack up against those of Westerosi reality? Intimidating as the giants north of the wall are, at a paltry 10 to 14 feet in height, they are dwarfed by the giants of Scottish and Irish lore, whose strides could span whole seas. Westerosi giants like One Leg Wondar One, affectionately known as One One, reach a maximum height of around 14 feet tall. Poor One One would not even be able to reach the ankle of Finn McCool, a giant, Irish and Sco- a giant of Irish and Scottish lore, known as Fingal in the latter since the 18th century, uh, who supposedly created the giant's causeway in Antrim and sat upon a titanic stone throne in his cave on the Isle of Staffa. In some iterations of the legends of Fingal and his accompanying heroes, known as the Fianna, he stood as tall as 500 men. Such a giant could step over Westeros' wall as easily as we step over a sandcastle. Even Fingal's hound, Bran, would stand head and shoulders above one one. And then I do discuss, actually, um, you know, the dog stone there. Um, and it's known as Clacknancon, the dog stone. Mm. Uh, and so Scottish giants clearly went out with pure physicality, but then there's the question of culture and of cognition, which is more complex. Both sets of giants are intelligent enough to, do, to domesticate animals. No small feat, considering the vast majority of humanity's time on Earth was spent without canine companions or beasts of burden. Fingal has his hound, loyal to the end, and one one spoke of mammoths that they ride as we do horses. Hmm. Maesters have always put forward evidence that Westerosi giants buried their dead hinting at a well-developed sense of community, individuality, and even something approaching a religious belief system. As Tormund Giantsbane, who should know, observes, they are not the monsters you Southerners think. They do not, however, craft tools, forge their own weapons, or build permanent dwellings. Hmm. In contrast, the only thing that would give away the fact that you had stumbled into a Scottish or Irish giant's home rather than that of a regular medieval family is that everything would be bigger. Giants like Fingal build sturdy and cozy homes for their families, craft furniture, adore ornamentation, hunt with spears and bows, and devise all kinds of schemes and stratagems. Westerosi giants, like those fighting alongside the wildlings at the Battle of Castle Black, can be taught to use tools. One wields a monstrous bow that can fire to the top of the wall, and others use hooks and chains to tear open Castle Black's outer gate, but cannot produce them independently. It seems that Scottish giants win this round as well. Though we shouldn't be too hard on Westerosi giants like one one, they are clearly much smarter than the average ogre. I like the ogre comparison at the end. Oh, there's also a little bit of a Yogi Berra reference as well. (laughs) So then you pick the second one. Which one of these um, mythical creatures would you like to tackle for number two? 
Yeah, well, I think especially, you know, we're bearing in mind places to visit, right? Mm -hmm. And again, travel and, and firsthand experience is very much at the heart of what this book is all about. Um, I would have to point you towards Donino Den. Um, and that is a place which is just south of St. Andrews, which is a very popular tourist destination as is. Mm. Uh, but relatively few people make it only 10 miles to the south of the town to Donino. Um, and what it is is basically a, it's an old ritual site. It's a, a Pictish ritual site which has been in use pretty well continuously for at least 2,000 years. Um, and the, the Celts and the Picts were broadly a part of the Celtic family, um, revered several things, you know, sort of above all in the natural world. They revered things like trees and groves. Um, they revered rivers and bodies of water, um, caves, all what we refer to as liminal places, places which are kind of transitory, not quite one thing and not quite another, sort of existing in between realms. Um, so, you know, a dark pool, for instance, um, you know, in the middle of a forest, it's not quite the sea, but it's not land either. It's sort of a fusion of the two, just as, you know, caves are sort of an entrance down into another world that we access through our own. Hmm. Um, so liminal places were very important to them, and Donino Den was one such place. And it's one of those moments that just makes you jump, to be honest, because um, I didn't know what to expect when I went there. So you go down um, sort of the, these rock-cut steps, which are carved into a natural rocky crag. At the top of that crag, there is a very dark pool of water that goes straight down into the stone of exactly the sort that the Picts would have worshipped as a portal between our world and the Celtic other world that the mm. gods and the fairy folk inhabited. Um, you go down this rock-cut set of steps, there are several um, early Christian crosses from the 6th and 7th century carved into the stonework. So it's a pagan site, but it's also an early Christian site. And then you um, get down into the den itself, which is covered over by a canopy of trees and got a little burn flowing through it. And you'll notice that people have left little offerings, things like ribbons tied to tree branches, glass baubles buried in the soil, coins pressed into tree trunks. And these are all offerings to the fairy folk. And people do this to this day in 2019. Wow. Some people go to a place like Danino Den and with you know entire earnestness press a coin into a tree trunk as an offering. Whether they actually believe that the fairy folk will receive it, I don't know. But they're participating in something which has been going on since before history can truly remember. And the most sort of amazing element of it for me was when you, you round the bend um, and staring right back at you, carved in this rock wall, is a face. And it looks almost exactly like the face carved into the heart trees in the Weirwood Groves in Game of Thrones. So where Ned in Winterfell is sitting sharpening his greatsword ice, um, those freaky trees that almost look like they're crying blood, they're usually white with a fairly severe face carved into them. Mm. It looks exactly like that. Creepsville. Yeah. Um, and that's one of those moments where... You know, it really hits home that if you think the world of Westeros is impressive, there are places in Scotland that are every bit as improbable. Mm. So let me ask you um, about, and this is going to be a little bit off of our format that I sent you, but um, in terms of people getting to these places and, 
you know, I know that you're pretty sensitive to environmental impact and those sort of things. When we talk about, um, you know, I talk a lot to my guests about over tourism or places that aren't prepared to handle traffic. Like, are they parking? Are they taking a train? How, you know, are there any places that any places that you would want to give a warning about or like an advisement? Well, I think one of the, the the main ways that you know myself and a number of other uh, sort of writers um, and people engaged in Scottish heritage and tourism are dealing with right now is this question, as you say, of over tourism. Um, and when we say over tourism, that can be a very very loaded term. You mm-hmm. know, immediately it comes to mind sort of nimbyism and grumpy locals, you know, shooing away visitors, and that's not really what we mean by over tourism. Um, what we mean by that is sort of the concentration of tourism um, in a very small number of places. And so during summer, for instance, um, you know, places like the Isle of Skye and indeed Edinburgh and one or two other locations like, you know, Loch Ness and Inverness um, are absolutely heaving um, to the point where, you know, I I can't help but feel to a certain extent it does take away from the experience. Um, So that doesn't mean don't go to those places. Um, That means maybe considering going to those places on the shoulder seasons. Mm. Uh, And a lot of my traveling throughout Scotland has actually been sort of in early spring and autumn, which I find most enjoyable. Um, And it's also just a matter of getting off the beaten track. You know, I, I do walking tours in Edinburgh as well. And quite often I'll ask people what they have planned for the rest of their trip. And, you know, Seriously, eight, nine times out of ten, they'll tell me, oh, we are popping into somewhere like St. Andrews and then going up to Loch Ness, spending a night in Inverness over the Isle of Skye and then back to Edinburgh. Yeah. And okay, those are all great places, but there is so much more in Scotland um, that is worth your time. So what I would strongly encourage folk to do um, is look into some of the paths less followed and they're not all that difficult to find and um, for instance the map that I've had done for the book um, does distribute the locations I hope quite equitably around Scotland um, sending people down into the Scottish borders for instance which is a neglected area mm. um, you know out into uh, certain islands in the inner outer Hebrides that aren't visited as often even into the northeast places which aren't traditionally regarded as tourism hotspots um, now uh, you know, renting a car can be a very, very quick and efficient way to get around because the reality is that a good number of these locations are in fairly rural areas. Um, what I do is I get everywhere by a combination of public transportation and cycling. Um, now, sometimes that does mean cycling 30 or 40 miles in a day. And of course, that's not realistic for some people. Um, but most of the places that I have listed on the map and many of the locations discussed throughout the book are locations that I have visited firsthand. In fact, I made a point not to write about anywhere that I hadn't visited firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, all those places have been reached by some combination of public transit and walking or cycling. Um, so rest assured that there is a ton that you can see and do, um, even if you don't have access to a car for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, I would uh, recommend as well, if you are visiting places like Stirling Castle, for instance, um, or like Edinburgh Castle, these are major visitors attractions which get thousands of people every day so my top piece of advice would be to visit either first thing in the morning or later in the afternoon because if you're there right in the middle of the day you're you know just going to be absolutely mobbed um, and that could create challenges for things like parking and accessibility 
and you just won't have as much room to enjoy it as well. Um, it's so, so true. And even in Oxford, because we get the um, like the student buses in the summer, and right. it's I could not. I mean, we live almost a mile outside of the, outside of city center, um, and we we called a cab, and he basically said, "Listen, I've never seen it this bad. You should just get out and walk because." We didn't want to have, I mean, there's no parking in Oxford, but it was just so crazy. And then today we got into the city really early and there's just no one there. I mean, these tour buses don't roll in until like 10 o'clock. And so it's the same thing in Oxford. Get out early. This is, this is an early bird gets the worm type situation. And, um, and also at Edinburgh, when we were there, they actually sold out of tickets. So if you don't get there early enough, you might not get a ticket. So so, so for some of these locations, you know, pre-booking tickets can be advisable for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the locations, especially on the map, are accessible by, uh, you know, things like ferries as well. Um, so Calmat, Caledonia, McBrain is the ma- main ferry uh, provider here in Scotland, um, at least on the West Coast. And um, so it's always worth just checking up with their timetables because there can be some surprises in store. For instance, you might think, oh, let's hop on a ferry and head out to an island. And, you know, say it's a Monday, you're doing that. And you might not realize that actually there's no ferry back that day and there's not one until Wednesday. Oh, <laughs> so, you know, so just make sure if you are traveling out to these places um, that, you know, you do actually know that you can get back to where you need to be as well. Um, so never take transit for granted is one of the very, very big points I would emphasize based on plenty of experience, both positive and negative in that regard. <laughs> Can you send me um, the, the name and possibly a link to the ferry service um, or, or transportation links that you think are helpful? And I'll put them in the show notes so that people can Certainly. have those. Great. Um, and then, all right, so let's talk about, I think that we're on, we've, so we've done our mythical creatures and our kind of gods and monsters chapter. Can we talk about, which is kind of the big one and one that everyone will recognize, chapter 20, a red wedding and a black dinner. So let's go out with a bang and conclude mm-hmm. with this chapter. Let's set the stage and talk about this most important tradition of welcoming and protecting guests into your home and how that gets us into this scene. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, did you find as well that the red wedding was the most shocking event in game of Thrones or life? If you're talking about black dinner. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Basically, if you've seen the red wedding, you know what we're getting onto here. Um, You know, many, many, horrifying, terrible, brutal things happen in the course of Game of Thrones. Mm. And yet when you talk to folk about what is sort of the the one that's stuck with them the most, um, it's inevitably the Red Wedding. Um, And my argument for, for, you know, why that is the case is that it, it hits something almost sort of essential to human nature, um, which is, uh, you know, the betrayal of a sense of safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the reason that the Red Wedding and Game of Thrones and the historical event known as the Black Dinner, which is actually sort of two events rolled into one, um, were so shocking is because it violates what is known as the principle of guest right. Now, guest right is something which is not particular to Scotland. Um, it's actually something that we see in 
sort of tribal and kin-based societies all throughout the world. So mm. there are versions of it in Afghanistan, for instance. There are versions of it in Norway, uh, you know, even in uh, sort of indigenous societies in North America. Um, and the fundamental idea is, you know, at any point, especially in a pastoral society where there are outdoors lots, you might need to seek shelter or you might need to meet with your neighbors that you've yeah. been fighting with for centuries or your family at least has been fighting with for centuries. Um, and so say, you know, you're up in the highlands and a storm hits and if you don't get inside, your life could be in danger. You find a home, you knock on the door, the door opens up and it is your mortal enemy. What do you do? Um, <laughs> Ideally, it doesn't devolve into a stabbing match at that point because guest right basically says that if you are seeking shelter, shelter must be provided to you, even if that's by someone who hates your guts. Hmm. Now, it's going to make for an awkward night in, you know, sort of staring <laughs> suspiciously at each other across the fire. Um, <laughs> but the idea is that a guest must never, ever harm their host and vice versa. The host must never bring harm to their guest. Mm. And one of the things you can do to sort of seal this agreement is eat and drink. And traditionally, it's something like eating bread and salt, um, sometimes with a little bit of ale and later in Scottish history, a bit of whiskey as well. Mm. Um, so that's sort of you sealing the deal. And indeed, when we see the Starks arriving at the Twins, the Frey Castle where the Red Wedding happens, Pretty much before anything else happens, Catelyn Stark sort of interrupts while the boys are starting to chat. And she says, you know, Lord Frey, can you get us some bread and salt, please? We're really hungry. We'd really like some bread and salt. And it's very clear what she's doing. She's saying, we're now under your roof, but we do not trust you at all. So seal this deal so we know that we can relax. Um, Smart lady. Yeah, absolutely. She was smart in some ways, in others, you know, taking Tyrion prisoner in the inn. Eh. Not so much, but she, <laughs> she had her priorities in the right place, I think. Um, and so, you know, that food and drink is brought out, so it seems like everything's going to be okay. Um, and the equivalent of this is um, an event, two events, really, but the more well-known one was in Edinburgh Castle. Um, it happened in 1440. And uh, at that time, the Douglas family was one of the most powerful families anywhere in Scotland. Now, they weren't a clan because they weren't in the Highlands. They mm. were a noble family, mostly based in the south of Scotland. Um, and they had dozens of castles and estates all throughout the country. They could raise upwards of 15,000 men. So if anyone were to revolt against the king, if the Douglases did that, they're the one family that could probably take the king on. Mm. And so some of the king's advisors wanted to take the Douglases down a few notches. The king was only 10 years old at the time, James II, just a boy. Um, and he was very much a puppet king in his early years. His advisors were pulling the strings. And his advisors were the ones who came up with this idea of inviting the head of the Douglas family to dine with King James II in Edinburgh Castle. Now, the head of the Douglas family, William Douglas, was only 18 years old when this happened, two years older than Rob Stark was at the Red Wedding. And he was extended in writing um, guest right. And so only at that point did he accept this invitation. And he was so sure that it would be okay that he actually brought his younger brother with him as well, um, mm. which was a bit foolhardy. You know, you only trust someone so far, right? right. Uh, nonetheless, William brought his younger brother, David, along with him. They arrived at Edinburgh Castle uh, in November of 1440. 
And it seemed like things were going well to begin with. There was a feast provided for them. Wine was flowing. And by all accounts, James II and William Douglas got on really, really well. And then it all hit the fan because a piper entered the room and started playing a somber tune, just like the musicians at the Red Wedding in Game of Thrones started playing the Reigns of Castamere. And, you know, that's never a good sign when that song mm. starts playing. Um, and uh, then in the Black Dinner, the real historical version, it is said that a servant entered the room with a black bull's head on a silver platter. And a black bull's head in Scotland is an ancient Celtic symbol of death basically means that your head is going to be joining it momentarily. Um, and at that moment, William Douglas realized the game was up, stood up, was seized, dragged out in front of Edinburgh Castle, and along with his younger brother, tried for treason, of which he was not guilty, hanged, drawn, and quartered, given a traitor's brutal death. And brutal. that very quickly known as the Black Dinner. And the reason that it became such a scandal and erupted into effectively a civil war wasn't just because someone was murdered. That happened left, right, and center in medieval Scotland. Um, it was because guest right had been violated, and there was nothing you could do that was worse than that. But there was a whole category of Scots law, which dealt with what was called murder under trust, which was seen as, like, murder plus, like extra bad murder, basically. Yeah, because you, like, it's like you lured them in. Oh, so deceitful. Oh, gosh. Premeditated and, and conniving. Um, and it sort of fundamentally transgresses this idea that you are safe within a host hall, um, you know, which threatens to disrupt the very fabric of society, in particular in somewhere like the Highlands. And so in Game of Thrones, you know, it's not just the nobles who adhere to guest right. Even Craster abides by guest right. And Craster mm. is one of the worst characters in the whole series. <laughs> I mean, he's the one with the holdfast north of the wall who has children with his own daughters and all this kind of you know, just absolutely heinous stuff. Yeah. But even he says, like, whoa, boy, simmer down. You're guests in my home. Do you not respect guest right? Um, you know, so it, it goes down to even the most sort of detestable figures. It's that sort of ingrained in society as it would have been in Scottish society. Well, that's going to kind of conclude uh, what we were going to cover with the book just because we could go on quite long about it. Um, but I don't want to miss out on anything if we haven't covered it and you want to talk about it. Is there anything that you want to get into or any last place that you just, you really want to point out to people and have them visit in their trip to Scotland? Is there anything you'd like to cover? Yeah. Um, I think in the spirit of going off the beaten track a little bit, one of my absolute favorite places in Scotland um, is Kilmartin Glen. Mm. And uh, have you been out that way by any chance? No. Tell me. I'll I'll go. Yeah. Kilmartin Glen um, is generally referred to as um, one of the most diverse and significant archaeological landscapes anywhere in the British Isles. Um, It is right up there with the heart of Neolithic Orkney in terms of the significance of the site. Mm. Uh, in Kilmartin Glen and around it, within a couple miles of the centre of the Glen, there are over 600 historic sites of interest. It's off the charts. You know, you could spend weeks there. Um, and there's everything from castles to standing stones, rock art, um, cairns, ancient burial mounds, old pubs. It's got absolutely everything. Coastal scenery, the mm. rolling hills. Oh, it just... 
you know, just talking about it makes me want to go out there. It's just so good for the soul out in Kilmartin Glen. Um, and it was one of these moments um, that, you know, when I was watching the, the TV show Game of Thrones, where I actually jumped out of my seat and went, oh, my God, um, because it's the scene John is bringing Daenerys down into the caves underneath Dragonstone. Uh, maybe season seven, actually. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, he's showing her this rock art, which had been left by the first men in the children of the forest thousands of years ago. And I must admit, there is one part which is really funny because clearly some intern on the show had to sketch <laughs> the White Walkers because it goes from like this very believable sort of ancient rock art up to like almost a chalk drawing of White Walkers with individual fingers and weapons. And it's like, yeah, okay, I'm not <laughs> We can just rewind a little bit. Now we're on to something. Uh, because he sort of, he holds this torch up to the cave wall. And part of the wall is completely covered in these enigmatic designs. There's spirals. There's sort of crisscrossing zigzags. There's depictions of animals. All these sort of mysterious symbols, which we see many, many times throughout the run of the show. And unfortunately, which we never really got any answers to. Um, but um, I leapt out of my seat when I saw that because I, I went, oh, my God, these are cup and ring marks. Um, and cup and ring marks were made for the most part about four, four and a half thousand years ago on exposed rocky surfaces, mostly in the west of Scotland, but they are found all throughout Europe, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the greatest concentrations, if not the greatest concentrations of cup and ring rock art um, is in Kilmartin Glen in Argyle. And basically what it is, is it's like a little sort of cup, just like a little divot, basically, with rings then carved around the divot. And sometimes it is just a cup and there are no rings. Sometimes there are eight or nine layers of rings around the cup. Um, and they look exactly, and I'm talking you know, spitting image exactly like the designs that Jon Snow's Danny on that cave underneath Dragonstone. And the best thing about finding these places in Kilmartin Glen is they're just completely open. You don't have to pay ticket, you know, pay a ticket price anywhere to go and see them. They're just in farmers' fields and you know on the sides of paths, and you never quite know when you're going to stumble across one. Um, so if I could, yeah, sort of encourage you to go out and have a really interesting off the beaten track experience where the level of discovery is entirely up to you and where you'll probably be more or less on your own really able to allow the atmosphere and sense of wonder to sink in i would say go track down the cup and ring marks of kilmartin glen and pretend you're communing with the children of the forest my son would love that he is so into like seek and finds and treasure hunting he's been making me maps that would be perfect for him Oh, he'd have an absolute heyday out there. I'm certain, as are the historians and archaeologists working out there as well, that we've not found everything that there is to find out there. So you never know. Never know. And, you know, it reminds me, um, just in you saying this, and I've seen your photos, um, but it reminds me of, you know, out west in the United States, we have the Anasazi sites. Yes. And they do something, or they did something similar uh, uh, to that. And with a center... Uh, supposedly being, you know, kind of the portal. They put them kind of where they thought the portal was to, uh, you know, another plane, essentially, or or to wherever their, you know, spiritual home is. So that's interesting. Well, it's interesting you, you raise that uh, as an example as well, because I know that the Anasazi, um, you know, at least uh, according to Jared Diamond's analysis in his book Collapse, um, you know, almost certainly um, were sort of driven out and their civilization came to an end 
because of climate change. Yes. Uh, and, um, you know, sort of overly intensive use of agriculture and droughts and, you know, a combination of factors. Um, and, of course, many people have read Game of Thrones as a parable for climate change as well. Um, and, you know, this is something that is going to be having a huge impact, um, obviously, um, on our world and on Scottish and international heritage. There are many historic sites which are now in jeopardy because of coastal erosion and, you know, rising sea levels and um, you know, all kinds of different factors. Um, so, you know, that's another side of the story that I would encourage people to investigate as well, um, because that's possibly one of George R. R. Martin's intentions behind writing Game of Thrones. Um, and it's going to be you know, an increasingly large part of our story going forward as well. Maybe that's your next book, David. Could be, you know, the the, the lost historic sites of, of climate change. I'm sure there are people already working away on things like that, in fact. Um, yeah, absolutely. So then speaking of that, you know, next things, what is next for you? Yeah, uh, well, next up is uh, I'm going back to school. Actually. Yay! Congratulations. Thank you. So I'll be studying at the University of Stirling, um, you know, just down the road from where the Battle of Stirling Bridge happened, when in case I need a little bit of inspiration for a lunchtime walk, yes. uh, go visit the old bridge. And I'll be doing a master's of research in historical research, um, focusing on the early stone castles, particularly of Scotland's west coast. So I'm really looking forward to digging into that. Um, I've also got a few talks coming up, actually. I know, um, you know this is quite soon, um, but um, on the 31st of this month, I'll be speaking out at Calendar House in Falkirk, um, and that's sort of a compressed version of the hour-long talk that I've done around my book, sort of along the same themes that we've been talking about today. Nice. Um, and I'll be doing a talk as well along similar lines for previously Scotland's History Festival um, in November. So uh, if you do happen to find yourself in Scotland and particularly in Falkirk or Edinburgh over the next couple of months, then um, there are a few opportunities to come by, uh, hear a talk and say hello. Are you signing books? I will be signing books, yeah. I'll have cool. uh, sale, I'll have copies of the map, uh, all that good stuff. Oh, that reminds me. I wanted to know if someone could get a copy, because I know they can download it if they have purchased a book. And um, and we should also mention that there was some slip-ups. Some copies were sent out without the map. And if you didn't get the map, you can email David and you'll see his picture on the show notes. And you can just click on his picture. An email link is there. Email him. He'll get you the download. But can people purchase the map separately? Yeah, I will actually be making it available on my website um, imminently. Actually, okay. you know, within the next few days, I'll have uh, sort of A2 and A3 sort of poster-sized versions cool. of the map available for sale. Um, but if you have purchased a copy of the book um, and the download link for the map wasn't in there, um, then do feel free to get in touch with me and I'll send you a, a version of it directly. Cool. And if you want to send me links to your speaking engagements, I'll put those in the show notes so people can click on them and see where you're going to be. Fantastic. Will do. Thank you. All right. And then lastly, let me compliment you on your photography skills. Uh, listeners, you will see in the center of the book, in the, in the resource section, most of the photographs are accredited to David because he really has been to all these places. So congrats. You have good skills. And yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, I've got a far better eye for photographing old rocks than I do of people. So anytime <laughs> I 
partner wants me to take a flattering picture of her, apparently I fail miserably, but if you need me to take a picture of a 5,000-year-old standing stone, then I'm your guy. <laughs> Put her next to the stone. There you go. Ta-da. <laughs> solution after all. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, thank you so much for being my guest again. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always, speaking with you. Thanks very much. And I really do hope that, you know, this encourages your listeners, you know, wherever you are in the world, to uh, go out and explore and to use fantasy like Game of Thrones as a way to have a fresh, exciting perspective on the world around us. Wonderful. I think so. I hope everyone does. All right. Well, this is Megan Chapa of the Travel Radio Podcast saying good night. <laughs>